This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 59, recorded on September 30th, 2016. This is the last day of Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. I'm your host, Tim Craig, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with my co-host, Neil Shaw. Welcome, Neil. Hello. And we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Sajid Qureshi. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Sajid comes from Mumbai, or Bombay, India, where he is the a professor of pediatric surgery at the Tata Memorial Children's Hospital. Did I get that right? Tata Memorial Hospital. Tata Memorial Center, Tata Memorial Hospital. Uh, and so he comes to us from, he's probably the guest who's traveled the farthest just to be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's been visiting with us for a few days, and, and it's been a, a real nice visit. And we've been able to hear a lot about his experience about taking care of children with cancer. So just for our audience, one of the things I'd like to begin with stating is we often say that we can cure 80% of children in the United States with cancer, but we only cure 20% of children in the world with cancer. And I think we'll get into some of that and, and why that might be the case and is that really true anymore. But certainly it speaks to the fact that we need to do a better job internationally with spreading best practices and resources and so forth. But why don't we why don't why don't we just hear a little bit from you about um, your background and how you got into medicine in general and cancer in particular? I'm a surgical oncologist. Uh, I did my training from the Tata Memorial Hospital. Uh, I started my career in surgical oncology in 1997, and that field was really fascinating. It uh, I progressed from my uh, post graduation to my residency to my fellowship, and this field, uh, the pediatrics. It was an unexplored area. There were uh, no pediatric surgical oncologists. There were surgeons, surgical oncologists who were managing pediatric solid tumors. But definitely there was a need for having a dedicated guy who does only pediatric solid tumors. And there I came into picture and I'm really lucky to be there in this position. That I, that's the field which I've been working for the last 11 years. And now I'm a fully dedicated pediatric surgical oncologist managing solid tumors uh, in in the biggest tertiary cancer center in India, which is the Tata Memorial Hospital. What what got you into what what made you interested when you were younger in this field in, at all? I I wanted to do something about the cancers and I was very much interested in the head and neck cancer which formed 25% of all registration at the Tata Memorial Hospital, the largest single cancer type. Working on this tumor, uh, we realized that there was a, a, a need for having a comprehensive cancer care for children. There was, there was a need and uh, this, uh, if someone has to do it, I said to myself, why it should not be me? And that's how I got into uh, this field. Do you come from a family of doctors? Uh, in fact, I'm the only, uh, the first doctor in my family. <laughs> You're the first? Yes. Oh, wow, that's great. And I know you have two children who are also studying medicine. Yes. So you're passing on your passion. Yes. 
Did you know people growing up with cancer, or did you have any experience as a young boy? Uh, 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 no, in fact, uh, there were members in my family who were ill most of the time and that was the genesis of me becoming a doctor. It was a dream of my father for someone in the family to be a doctor to take care of the family members. It was just by chance that uh, um, this thing happened that I was I got a seat in medical college and from there on my desire to become a surgeon brought me to Tata Memorial Hospital and from there there was no looking back. I suppose not. So because you've been busy, you don't have time to look back. <laughs> so speaking of being busy, tell me how many people live in Bombay. Uh, the current estimate of uh, the population in Bombay is 18 million. 18 million. One eight, 18 million. Okay. So in Columbus, Ohio, where we are, we have about 2 million. So you have about a lot more. We're talking New York scale here, yeah. All right. So, and in that 18 million, how many, uh, there's probably several hospitals, right? Tata is not the only hospital. How many medical centers or hospitals uh, serve that? There are uh, several uh, public hospitals. The general hospital we see, they include the municipal hospital and the hospital managed by the government. There are several private hospitals now which have cropped up in the city of Bombay, which is largely catering to the middle class and the rich population. But definitely for for most of the patients with uh, 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 treatment in cancer, Tata stands tall amongst all the hospitals who are catering to uh, cancer patients. So you divide that patient population up amongst these hospitals. So how many patients do you get at Tata with pediatric cancer? Do you define pediatric under what age there? So pediatric cancer in our hospital, we have taken 0 to 15 years. So 0 to 15? 0 to 15 years. Okay. And how many patients do you get on average every year? Uh, on an average, we get around 2,000 cancer patients, pediatric new cancer patients each year. Around 2,000. So that's for 15 years and under. So at our hospital, for example, we take care of patients at any age if they have a pediatric cancer diagnosis, so into the 30s and 40s. And if you count all those, we probably get close to 200. So tenfold less. <laughs> now we have, in order to take care of those 200 patients each year, which, you know, we take care of, obviously, those are new diagnoses, so many patients who might have been diagnosed a year or two or three before will st still taking care of them. So our total number of patients that we take care of with cancer is probably four or 500 active tre treatment patients. But in order to take care of those patients, we have about 30 hematologists, oncologists, and about 20 advanced practice nurses, so about 50 providers to care for those 200 patients. How many providers, uh, and then surgeons, of course. We, we have one main general surgeon who does most of our cases. We have several others who participate and help out. We also have orthopedic surgeon and uh, neurosurgeon. Yeah, so, and ENT surgeons that take, so, you know, maybe five, six surgeons that are actively doing surgeries on, on uh, cancer patients. So, how many oncologists or hematologists, oncologists, do you have at your hospital, and how many cancer surgeons for pediatrics? For the regarding the surgeon, I am the only surgeon who is managing these solid tumors. And regarding the medical oncologists, we have four active medical oncologists who are taking care of these the pediatric solid tumors. And do you have a, a position equivalent to like advanced practice nurses who can see patients without having the doctor see them? For some other visits? Unfortunately, this is not the case. All the patients have to be managed and seen by us. No. 
So for the we have 50 providers plus surgeons for our 200 patients. You have four providers plus four, five surgeons. Four solid. For 2,000 patients. Uh, medical oncologists and four liquid medical right, oncologists. Right, so you have eight. You so have eight. probably eight. Um, so we, I uh, hate to really even say this, but we feel like we work hard. <laughs> we're, you know, we're, we're all stressed. I mean, granted, we're trying to do a fair amount of academic work, um, research and, and teaching and so forth. Do you have any teaching or research? We have a very good teaching program. In fact, we are running the uh, specialty training, uh, the DM, the Doctorate of Medicine uh, in uh, Pediatric Oncology. We are running the Surgical Oncology Super Speciality Training Program, which is the MCH program. We have several fellowship in Surgical Oncology. Okay, so I don't have anything on yet from the teaching standpoint, but we do a lot of research. I'm sure you don't have any time for, for much research. Are you doing some research? Yeah, we are doing some some research, and I, I would say that that research is limited to the clinical uh, aspect of management of pediatric tumors. We are still lots to do in the basic and the translational research, but definitely we are looking forward to that area and my visit to this place is definitely to look forward for collaboration in research in pediatric Yes, but I guess I've uncovered I think one possible reason for differences in cure rates perhaps I would conjecture that just uh, there's I can't imagine there's a you guys have enough time in your day, unless India has more than 24 hours in a day <laughs> different from the US then you guys can spend the same kind of time or thinking or um, put the same effort into each patient. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. We are too overwhelmed with our clinical practice that it's very difficult to have time uh, for generating a good hypothesis or thinking of uh, some basic research which will mm, uh, take away uh, much of our time and we'll uh, do something in the, in the, in the labs. So much of time is uh, in the clinics and that's one of the reasons that why, but that should not be an excuse and uh, we should look forward to uh, invest some more time in the research aspect, not only clinical but other aspects of research like the basic and the translational. Well, certainly we feel like that is one of our major missions because we do have what appears to be an embarrassment of riches. Uh, that we feel like that's one of our missions. We have to do those things in order to make the future better for patients who are diagnosed with cancer. I'm just trying to paint a picture for our audience because I, I don't think that we often think of what it's like in other countries and certainly in, in large countries or um, other underdeveloped nations. We don't think about that. So I'm just trying to paint that picture for, for people, what it's, what it's like for you there. Could you describe the typical scene at the waiting room or you know, in a typical day, you walk, go into work, and what's it like there? Uh, we start our day early in the morning. Uh, uh, during our clinic stay, uh, the OPDs are inundated with lots and lots of patients. There are patients who are new registrations, patients who are in active chemotherapy, and there are patients who are in active follow-up. There's a big rush to get into the queue to uh, see the doctors. We try our best to fit, to see all the patients who come to the OPD um, and we uh, we depute our resident to make sure that all patients are seen on that particular day and whichever investigation is to be done has to be expedited being in a center where predominantly uh, the patient load is huddled we have to really squeeze in our patient to get the relevant investigation on time so that the therapy uh, can 
can be initiated at the earliest. So how many patients do you see each day? Yeah. Uh, uh, roughly on a working day, we see around 200 patients in the OPD, 250 patients in the OPD. You do have more hours in a day. <laughs> <laughs> it's not uncommon for us to finish uh, OPDs uh, late in the evening. OPD, outpatient. Outpatient training. Yeah. Uh, uh, to finish that, uh, the patient, hold of patient till 6 o'clock in the evening. It's very common to have patient being in the OPD till 6 o'clock and we being in the OPD outpatient clinic for till 6 o'clock. Um, and then you turn around and start right up the next day at midnight? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you can't afford to take it as yeah. now. So I think um, we'd like to hear about uh, what you have observed in your visit here. And You know, you've been to the U.S. a number of other times. You've spent time training St. Jude and Sloan Kettering and some other big centers. And, um, what do you think are some of the key differences between the practice of medicine? I, I think uh, uh, the place is very well organized. There's uh, good space. The patients are taken very care of. There are a good number of physicians. There's a good training program. There's an excellent patient program. And that's really interesting coming from an area where we uh, have a few minutes to spend with the patient, hardly five, ten minutes to finish off so that uh, there's no waiting of patient. I am surprised that we have enough patient and that enough time is given to these patients and their disease can be discussed with them, the investigations can be planned in a very systematic way. That's really amazing. So the entire setup, the infrastructural support, the number of clinicians which I see around, uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, we're amazed at how few <laughs> you have uh, to, to get the work done. So it's real, I don't know how you do it. The, so we've talked also about the, the difference in the population. You know, at, at Tata, you, you try to take as many comers as you can across the spectrum. Uh, the middle class is, is rapidly growing in India, but traditionally the, um, the medical model there is fee-for-service. And obviously, still, a large number of patients don't have those resources. But you have, have really taken it on uh, just, just uh, with full effort, and it's really uh, astounding kind of what you've done in that way. And, and making a holistic program. Can you, can you share with our listeners a little bit about, about that side of the program? Right. So, uh, uh, being a hospital which is being supported by the federal government, uh, indirectly through the Department of Atomic Energy, the main purpose or the main motto of the hospital is service. And service, along with service, there is education and research. Unfortunately, many of our patients are from the low uh, socioeconomic data. Uh, on an average, 80% of all registration we have are from the general category. By general category, I mean to say that these are the patients who are not having that much income that they can be charged for their investigation and the treatment. 20% of our patients are affording and they are kept in the private category depending on their wish to stay in a single room or having investigations in a separate place. That's the basic difference the, in the diagnosis, the therapy, there's no difference amongst patients who are from the general category or the private category. The investigation and the treatment doesn't change. It's just for the comfort of the patient who desire to be in having a single room. That's the place of the private category of patient. But vast majority of our patients are from the general category. In this general category, 
we uh, take the uh, social profile of these patients, their financial standing, and based on that, we decide that these are the patients who require intensive help in the form of finances, accommodation uh, for their food, and taking care of their families. So based on that initial assessment by our social service department, we uh, give intensive support to these patients. And uh, the remaining patient, they also receive the standard investigation protocol. They are also discussed in the tumor board and their treatment is planned. It is not that the private category patients are given a priority over the general category. All patients are one for us. The money that helps assist patients who need it, where does that come from? Uh, so we have uh, 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 an adoption scheme by our institute where children who are less than 10 years of age with a, a, a not so advanced and a treatable cancer, they are totally adopted by the hospital. By adoption, I mean that the entire investigations, treatment and cost of their treatment is being borne by the hospital. The remaining patient who are not affording but require treatment. So we have the government scheme which give partial support. But most importantly, we are very fortunate that we have several philanthropic organizations which help us in seeing, uh, taking care of the patient treatment. Uh, this is uh, in terms of providing finances or giving them nutritional support or providing them accommodation, etc. etc. So that's the so I would say that much of the patient support is from the community, from the big corporate and the philanthropic organization, and a good amount of support from our institute. If someone were listening and they wanted to support your program, is there a particular website or organization they should contact? Yes, the the, the hospital website www tatamemorialcenter.com That's T-A-T-A-M-E-M-O-R-I-A-L-C-E-N-T-R-E Yes. Dot com. The, Brit the British Center. The British Center, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, so okay. that, that's a site and all details are available for providing support to uh, you can provide no support for sponsoring the patient's treatment or providing support for treatment of any any category, pediatric or adult population, it's all available on the website. Well, let's go back to the difference in the patient population besides the fact that you have a high proportion that need financial assistance. You mentioned to us that many of your patients come to you malnourished and you have to feed them to, before you even start treatment. Tell us about that. So, the, uh, the national figures of malnutrition, the incidence of malnutrition is very high in India. The national figures of malnutrition is 50%. At Tata Hospital, we see around 40% of our patients with cancer having malnourishment. And these are the patients, if we start the treatment, they are the ones who are not going to tolerate. So, it is all but necessary for us to support them nutritionally. We take care of them of that by providing them midday meal support, giving high protein supplement, and if required, uh, 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 intravenous uh, hyperalimentation. Those patients are admitted, either force feeding with a right tube or intravenous total parental nutrition is initiated so that they can tolerate the therapy well. 
So how long do you have to wait before you determine their... Uh, that's a difficult thing. We have to start the treatment as early as possible. So uh, what we have uh, advised is we start... After once we have started the uh, nutritional supplement, we start the therapy at a, a low dose so that the patient tolerated well. And depending on the tolerability of the patient, we shift to the regular uh, protocol for that particular disease type. So usually maybe a week of feeding before you... Uh, roughly 10 days, yeah. roughly 10 days. And does do any of them suffer from refeeding syndrome where... You get a lot of metabolic derangements because they're not used to having that kind of nutrition on board? Absolutely. There are uh, frequent patients like this who require additional support. And we, we have a separate nutritional program wherein these are the people who are funded by the philanthropic support, uh, philanthropic organization. So we have a nutritional supplement, a nutritionist who takes care of the nutrition program. We have a, a, a homemade uh, materials which provide high proteins and these are fully sponsored by private donors to us. The other thing that caught my attention that's very different about your population, or at least some of them, is that you'll get a lot of patients with advanced disease uh, or odd presentations because things have gone on so long without attention. Can you tell us about that or some examples? Or It's very common to have patients who have uh, advanced disease at presentation and that figure I would put uh, to around 40%. These are the patients who are from remote areas, they don't have access to medicines or investigations and probably they are under the care of faith healers or alternate forms of treatment. So by the time the, uh, the parents decide to move out from these places to seek medical attention, they come here with really advanced disease and it's not uncommon for us to find disease which is advanced but also metastatic to other side, other rare side. So in a way we are seeing the patients in their natural history. Uh, what will happen to patients who are untreated we have seen many a times and most of this patient in addition to uh, the disease have other comorbidities like malnutrition, infection, tuberculosis and basically these are the Poor, poor patients who uh, will not benefit by any therapy. So I guess those are some more obvious reasons why we aren't able to cure internationally as many patients because they have these comorbidities, they're not as nutritionally replete, they have more advanced cancers that have gone on. They seem like almost intractable problems. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's a problem we would like to get rid of as early as possible. Yeah. I first met Sajid uh, a number of years ago at the Advances in Neuroblastoma Research meeting, and uh, we, we've had, uh, both been at uh, four of these meetings since. Uh, a lot of the conversation at the meetings uh, are, are frankly from, from researchers and labs of the first world, where we talk about dose intensification, treatment escalation, making things uh, more involved, finding additional therapies, but, but not inexpensive therapies to pile on and on and on. When you're there, how frustrated do you get? And and how can we, as an international community, do a better job of, as Tim mentioned, you know, we do a great job in, in the first world, and we're kind of ignoring five-sixths of the world. So what specific ways should, should we be helping you? Yeah, it was really frustrating. By 2010, when I attended my first ANR, I was totally lost. I was thinking, where am I? Where are we placed? Uh, 
the the world is advancing and we are like million years behind them by 2012 i was so disgusted that i caught hold of the president of anr and just asked her what's the take home message for me you are advancing towards the newer treatment for treatment for advanced uh, relapsed disease and we are struggling in with patients for managing the initial disease and that was really frustrating for me but we realized that uh, the only way to get out of it is that device ways to have our patient at least receive treatment which is in par if not the same but in par and that required a lot of efforts and the main hindrance was the finances luckily we got financial help from many aspects so at least the the regular standard treatment is we still are lacking in the advanced treatment like the bone marrow transplant the immunotherapy which is not available in india but definitely we have reached a stage where wherein we can say that we have been managing our patient optimally not to the best standard but definitely optimally and from year on things should improve and be better well, i think it's a testament to you to be going out to these international meetings and seeing what the rest of the world is doing and trying to bring back what you can so that's really terrific and yeah. exactly. you talk a little bit in that regard what you know one of the the major factors in their lesson is mcn and can you talk a little bit about your story of of getting that yeah so so before 2007 nmic was a big fantasy uh, for us uh, the world was talking about nmic the risk stratification how the uh, presence uh, identification of nmic have totally changed the management so but we were really lacking we started with the pcr which is a relatively cheaper form of investigation uh, for nmic status we got that nmic by pcr slowly and steadily with uh, understanding with the administrations and help from the administration we got the nmic by fish we uh, validated those things we got the uh, sas uh, accredited by the national accreditation board and then uh, we have progress now in acquiring the the, you know, the latest uh, the mlps for identification of specific uh, molecular markers in neuroblastomas so we have progress and uh, these are the new advances uh, over the past few years wherein we at least in the diagnostic front though it can be further strengthened but at least we have reached the baseline level uh, where we can have a better stratification of our patient into uh, the appropriate risk so just it goes to show you that with with some effort you can go in a matter of 4 years from not having availability of the test at all to having really on par with what we're using on an international basis and that's that's really quite amazing <laughs> and for the things that you don't have that you can offer like bone marrow transplant you mentioned um do you do are you able to send patients elsewhere or do they have to have their own you know finances to go somewhere else as a government pay for anyone to go elsewhere Uh, yeah the bone marrow transplant is a big problem for us there are patients who are affording since this bone marrow transplant requires a lot of uh, investment a lot amount of money is there uh, we managed to get patients who are affording or who are being sponsored by the government but the large majority of patients are not affording so we have tied up uh, for these patients for getting the bone marrow transplant in the adjacent hospital which are catering to the private population 
but uh, we have got a subsidized rate for them and we have found ways for transferring the uh, financial support we had gathered at our institute for transferring there to the other institute so that the uh, the transplant can take without any hurdles ah so you can provide it within within bombay within yes, mumbai yes. but um, just not at your hospital yes yeah so people may think i'm crazy but for saying the following <laughs> but sajid and i talked this morning about are there things we can learn from him so one of the challenges in the united states is the rising cost of healthcare and we have an accountable care organization which is a uh, an agreement where um, we get a certain payment for each member of that organization regardless of what happens to them ear check or bone marrow transplant and so we're incentivized or motivated to cut costs and of course we don't want to cut effects or efficacy uh, but there are things we could probably do to reduce the costs of our modern healthcare in the past when it was all private payers there's no motivation for that but in our current situation and i think in a growing number of centers there is increasing motivation to reduce costs so you've had to do that naturally for all your patients figure out how to get around things so i think one of the things we've been hoping to, to talk about is areas where we could learn from them of what they've been able to do not necessarily on a shoestring budget but uh, with less intensity uh, that we could maybe adopt um, and there's some very interesting things going on i think that that will be talking more about right we we have been using this metronomic therapy which is uh, uh, the therapy in low dose and which is not toxic and which is uh, not costly so we have been using this for a different variety of tumor especially the ones which have relapsed and we have found uh, uh, some uh, improvement or at least Uh, stabilization of disease with metronomic therapy uh, metronomic is an evolving emerging branch and more and more uh, knowledge uh, uh, data is coming about the role of metronomic therapy not in pediatric cancer but in several other cancer so that is an area where we can definitely deintensify the treatment and uh, hope for uh, cost effective uh, outcomes Yeah, well, obviously, we'd have to look at things like that in terms of study, doing an actual clinical trial, because uh, which is what we're, we're doing these days in many areas is we're trying to reduce the intensity. We've achieved good cure rates in some diseases, so now can we back off and select patients who have good risk factors and still maintain great outcomes? Uh, so I think that's one of the challenges in the future to learn from each other and try to figure out how to take care of all patients better around the world. Absolutely, I think the 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 research opportunities um, uh, there are are fantastic, uh, and, and you've related as well. Another main challenge for you is how do we care for for these relapsed patients? You know, we we actually have some commonality in that in that for many of our solid tumors, you know, after the the first relapse, if they get to a second or third relapse, we're rapidly running out of options as well, and, and I think that. That you uh, demonstrate that need and interest. In, in which ways can we make that more accessible to the rest of the world? Is it a, something that we should be going to the companies and saying we should really be considering outside sources? Should we be going to the government and saying we should talk about more accessibility? 
I think the best way forward is to generate data that these things are really effective and it's the preliminary observation of us. I think we can generate data and collate our data and once we have information, yes, these are definite uh, advantages. We can go ahead with uh, uh, getting uh, uh, institute for a multi-centric study and uh, getting answers to this difficult uh, question about treating patients with uh, these sort of disease with some very low cost effective uh, low cost treatment uh, regimes. Well, we hope you can find time to collate those data and put them out there for us to read and, and think about and, sure. and sure. share with each other. So I really appreciate your being here. It's been a great discussion, uh, very eye-opening, and I hope our listeners enjoyed it. I'm sure they did. So thank you for being here. Thank you very much. And Neelay, thank you for being here. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, we're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions. If you send us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast. And um, we thank the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna Lewinsky, our executive producer, Cindy Campbell, director of communications, and thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.